Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Good afternoon. It is Madam Adams. In this holiday, you cannot forget our wounded, our warriors, our people. Nor can you forget the fact that I'm on the air right now. And I want to tell you, I have done an interview with Adams. Adams to Adams, the mayor and the madam. So I said to him, listen, who are you? Not everyone knew who you were before. How did you get to be the number one guy in the world's number one city? Who are you? Eric Adams said to me, for 28 years, I have been preparing to be the second black mayor New York's ever had. Yeah. So you never felt maybe you were judged more harshly because of the color of your skin? He says, there is no blanket yes to that answer. I can say a pocket of people think, well, he's not like the one we'd really want to represent us. He said, I have white supporters, Asian supporters. My friends are nice black people. My voters are a melting pot. He said to me, look, I'm a blue-collar civil servant. I did not attend the schools they did. I wasn't in their same clubs, not the same criteria. If I had, maybe their attitudes would be different. So he said, yes, I was aware there's a list of subjects with that group where I don't exactly fit. They don't always feel comfortable with me. I'm just not their kind. These people, he tells me, are fundraisers. This was when he came over to my house after I have been picking on him, and deservedly so. He said, look, I had a different upbringing. I had three brothers and two sisters. My dad was a butcher from the South, a good person, but always running around. What running around means, he didn't go further, but his father ran around. He says, my mother cleaned houses and ironed a thousand pillowcases and shirts. I would test the iron. Scorch one meant a month's salary. While he was doing this, he was eating my uh, stuffed eggs and tuna fish. And he said, damn, I wish I'd been different. But I was dyslexic. They didn't know what that meant then. I would scream. Words, dumb student, were scrawled on my chair. Said the mayor to me, I hated school. I was angry, wayward. I yelled as a child. I hated the police, which I later joined. The cops first arrested me when I was 14. Eventually, he said, my mother poured energy into me through her prayers. That was a night that Eric Adams was due at my home at 6.30. He called personally to change it to 7.30. 
There was nobody in the house. My housekeeper had left, and he said, It's no problem. I know how to do dishes. His honor was prompt. I had been not so nice about him. He had gone actually to the New York Post and asked our editor-in-chief, Why can't Cindy stop picking on me? And they said, What do you want from us? Go to her. So she came to her. Me. He was alone. His security types waited outside. Removing his jacket, which my dog hoped to destroy, he inhaled, thrown together some tuna, and he said, besides deviled eggs, and he said, you know, working to keep a roof over our heads, my mom saw me enter the police department, become a lieutenant, a captain, a state senator, a borough president, and on to the mayoral campaign trail. He took two calls. His cell was on my table. Then he said, I was there when my mother's heart monitor went off. But the doctor said she'd see me make it before her transition. And I then picked myself up and sitting at that cot kitchen table when Mommy told me, Remember, life is pain. You must turn pain into purpose. That meant for him, what he told me, community college, remedial classes. He said, an A.D. student. I then learned math, English. People began caring for me. The sky started to open, and I decided then nothing, not one thing, can wear me down. The Honorable Eric Adams, now mayor of the city of New York in my house, his mouth full of tuna, then put on his jacket, hugged my dog, grabbed his phone, and headed to zero bond to play for a main dish. That was my first evening with the mayor of the city of New York. Hey, we're coming to July 4th. Summer is coming. Thanks to our founding fathers, every child born in the USA today is endowed with life, liberty, and a share of the government debt. God made the universe. And then he rested. He then made man. And then he really rested. And then he made politicians. And nobody has rested ever since. He's thought a lot. We've all thought a lot. Maybe only in New York, kids. Only in New York. But we're having lots of problems everywhere. Except in New York, New York which is the greatest city in the whole world. It happens to be where you park your car, you walk two blocks, and then you find your hubcaps for sale. That is only in New York, kids, only in New York. So now let me tell you a little something about New York. Not that you don't know about it. Of course you do. But we just had Prince Empty and his Mimi Megan PR user wife. They had, what's told, a Manhattan car chase. Really? 
we are so congested, you can't get cross town unless you're born there. That's the kind of traffic we have. We have congestion. We have bike lanes. We have people building houses. We have outdoor eating. Nobody gets cross town. Nobody gets uptown. Nobody gets downtown. A follow car is only in Central Park if it's 2 a.m. Maybe these people, these two beauties, will schlep back to London. They will be safe there because there people will run away from them, not toward them. Or they can call Camilla, who went from crotch to queen and knows about survival. Let me tell you, this beauty, me, me, Megan, only wants to get an award in New York, kids. She doesn't want to get any award in Colorado. She wants it in New York. While I'm droning on, I want to talk about ex-FBI director James Comey. He finagled us. George Santos, who became a congressman, stole, lied, and he got in office. We got a dummy president who gets coached in his basement. Killings here are daily occurrences. Puppies feed on the street weed. Gambling's coming. Recession's coming. Undocumented migrants displace U.S. vets in hotels. Besides New York, are we not great or what? I want to tell you about one little thing that may not interest you. It interests me. It's been in the papers. Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia, is sinking. This may not mean something to you because it's not right next door, but it means something to me because I've lived there. News stories report the impossibilities of health, help, because graft, quote, end quote, graft, threatens the best intentions in Indonesia. It's true. I lived years in that city, writing Sukarno, its first president's as told to me, autobio. Thousands of Dutch East Indies islands, each in its own language, was Columbus's destination when he bumped into us. In 1945, Sukarno, sing single names are usual there, cobbled all into one country. Let me tell you about the graft. The prime industry is graft. Like when I helped them, local ladies were selling their long, thick hair. They needed to get rupia. That's their monetary facility. First, they paid the betcha. B for boy, E-T-J-A-K, pronounced betcha. It's their bicycle taxi. Next, they handed out rupia to the hair cutter's assistant, the hair cutter, the hair dealer's assistant, the hair dealer, the packager, the import-export person, the licensee, the minister of trade's assistant, the minister of trade, the export licensor, then the airport guy who helped me load it onto Pan Am, which flew to New York City. In countries which had nothing, graft is the way of life. And pay attention, friends. Listeners, we are getting there. 
But right now, I am getting to a station break. And right after that, I'm going to give you some delicious people to listen to. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. All the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. I am about to speak to John Rubenstein. He has been on stages more often than Shakespeare. He's got Tonys. He's got everything. He is now about to be opening in a play about Dwight David Eisenhower. Tell me. Tell me what's the name of the show. Tell me about it. It's called... Eisenhower, This Piece of Ground, and it's uh, a a new play, one-man show, written by Richard Hellison, a wonderful playwright, and directed by Peter Ellenstein. We um, have been working on it for over two years now, and we performed it at two different theaters out in Los Angeles last fall and winter. And now we're extremely happy to be bringing it to uh, New York, off-Broadway. What, what did you change if you've been tra- trying it out for two years? What did, what did you alter? Well, we haven't been trying it out. We've been working on it. We've been honing it. it change, you know, uh, took some bits out that, that seemed maybe a little bit too, too long and then shortened other things and changed language here and there. But the play is still essentially what it what it always has been it's a brilliant piece of writing okay when and where is it opening here we have our first preview on june 13th at the theater at saint clements which is on 46th street it's 423 west 46th street right in the theater district there and then we open on june 20th and have a limited engagement through july 30th tell me about Dwight David Eisenhower. He served two terms. Just tell me briefly about him, his history. Well, you know, uh, he was the great uh, uh, five-star general who commanded the invasion of Europe in uh, in 1944, commanded D-Day, and basically beat Hitler and the Germans. He was the one who uh, walked through the... Uh, concentration camps and realized what had been done and had it all filmed by by the U.S. Army. Then he came back to the United States. He was president of Columbia University, and then he was the first commander of NATO when it was first created. And then he ran for president in 1952. He was elected and then followed one of the, you know, uh, most peaceful and prosperous periods of American history, but Eisenhower is often sort of forgotten or or taken for granted. Yeah, yeah, Ike, he he, he loved to play golf. He was sort of old and bald, and he was like grandpa or something, and everybody liked him, and I like Ike, and that's it. But it turns out that he really accomplished a great, great deal. 
Okay, we had FDR, we had Reagan, we had LBJ, we've had George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, you name them. But why specific? I I don't argue with you. I understand. But tell us why specifically Eisenhower. Mostly because of his character. He was a man for whom being a good person and caring for the people you were responsible for whether it was the soldiers he sent to war or the citizens of the United States, was utmost in his mind. So he was, he was a moderate. He ran as a Republican, although he had never chosen a party before that, uh, simply because he had to beat Robert Taft uh, for the uh, nomination, who was an isolationist. And he believed that America had to come up to its best character and show who it was to the world and to themselves. And he created the uh, Department of uh, Health. You know, he he was a tremendous president, got a lot done, prevented, uh, you know, a nuclear war, fought against the, the military industrial uh, establishment, which wanted to take so much money, as they still do. And he was one of the last presidents that we ever heard who spoke from his heart and meant what he said and cared about the people he was he was uh, okay i know i've been told that you actually met eisenhower you knew him is that so well no i wouldn't ever say i i knew him i was a very little boy and my father uh, and mother were invited to the white house by his chief of staff sherman adams uh when he, when my dad was playing a concert in washington dc and i i was along for the trip and they took me to the White House, and uh, I came up to me and said, well, hello there, and shook my hand and was very, uh, very friendly. But that was, that was the extent of it. But still, you know, I'll never forget it. So would that be maybe partly of why you were pro-Eisenhower instead of maybe 40 other presidents? Well, I, I'm I'm not necessarily. I'm you know I'm a very uh, uh, left wing kind of guy. I'm I'm, oh, I'm well, a, oh, oh. I, I vote I vote Democratic all the time, um, and I wasn't voting uh, in those days, I, and I I don't know whom I would have voted for because I wasn't reading the papers very much, but uh, no, I, I admire Eisenhower because of uh, what he accomplished and who he was. And if you compare him to so many, even of some of the presidents that you uh, just mentioned, that I, in fact, voted for once I was old enough, um, he surges ahead and above of those presidents because, uh, because of his character and because how much he took seriously the job that he was doing. It wasn't okay, about... Okay, I need his- to have an anecdote. I have to understand. Did you, first of all, how did you get all of this material together? From his background, from his writings, what? Well, mind you, I didn't write this play. I know that. I I know that. But where did it all, all the information come from? It came from many books that have been written about him. One in particular by his granddaughter, Catherine Eisenhower, called How Ike Led. Very, very interesting book getting into his, his motivation, what what was underneath, uh, his his uh, his character and there was a time that i actually remember in 1962 when the new york times came out with a list of a ranking of all of the presidents up to then 
Uh, Ike was just out of office a year and a half. And he came out as number 22 out of 35. And he was very upset and hurt and surprised at that. And that's where our play takes off. Him reading that in the New York Times magazine and saying, what? (laughs) How could that be? And that prompted him to start recording into a tape recorder uh, his his uh, answer to that okay. ranking. Give, give me a scene. What was his boyhood like in Kansas growing up? We never knew really what that was like. Well, it, his, his father was a, uh, you know, a man who, who had a, a general store and uh, his partner stole all of his money and ran away with it at a time when there was a drought. Uh, so they were very poor. They moved to Texas where he got a job as a railroad engineer and uh, Ike was born in Texas. Then they moved back to Kansas. There were six sons, and they all did well. And their mother was very religious. She was a Jehovah's Witness, and she taught them this sort of morality and strength of character. And the father had a tremendous temper, which Eisenhower, uh, you know, inherited. And uh, they grew up poor. He only, he had no idea to have a military career, but he learned that if he could get into one of the military academies, he could have a college education and, and not cost his father a dime. And that's what he did. And once in the military, he took that oath at West Point, and uh, it changed him. It changed his life. And he started going up those ranks until finally uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, uh, assigned him the the uh, the head of the uh, – operations in Europe during World War II. Okay, John, do you actually mention the fact that he had a long time, although he was married, affair with his driver in during the war? Well, um, that affair doesn't really come up in our play because it wasn't <laughs> yeah, necessarily sure. an affair. Yeah. Well, no, because he, he denies it, and uh. other people say it happened. She wrote a book saying it did happen, but the thing is that we, it's not what our play is about. And if the moment you mention that, then you have Eisenhower standing there because I play him. I'm him. It's not like talking about him. If you talk about him, you can say anything you want. But if it's him, he's not going to start recording into his tape recorder about that particular situation. He does mention uh, whatever difficulties I may have had along the way with Amy. Uh, she I could not have done any of what I did without her. So he remained loyal and faithful and true to, to Mamie all his life. But Okay, so you guys were actually chicken. You were chicken. You never mentioned all of no, this. No, no, no. That's absolutely <laughs> not true. You know, if you write a play, and especially a one-man play, it's just one guy standing there talking and being Eisenhower, you can't say everything about a, a, a great, famous man's life. You can't. And if you go on to those side roads, suddenly the play, you got to have another 20 minutes. It has to last two or three hours. And that, that's okay, uh, unwieldy. Okay. Now, so, tell me if you yeah. – how do, how do you do a one-man play? Do you change clothes? You go behind scenery um, because he went from civilian clothes to military. How how do you do all of that? 
No, uh, our play takes place during one uh, early afternoon in the summer uh, in Gettysburg. After he has been president, he's retired. And that's when that article in the New York Times magazine came out. He'd been out of office for a year and a half. Young Kennedy was president. And, uh, and he sees that he is ranked low, and he has a tape recorder, which he's been recording, writing a book, a book about his presidency with his editor. And he talks to him on the phone, and then he turns on the tape recorder as if he was talking to those 75 historians put together by Arthur Schlesinger. And he tries to talk to them. How could you make me be number 22 when here are all the things that, that I did? And he talks, therefore, about his father and his mother and his brothers and about uh, you know the war and then about his presidency. And, and by the end of the play, he has evolved. He has come to a realization about what greatness means and what the rankings really are about. And uh, that, that's, uh, that's what we do. So I wear one costume I know you have Tonys. I know you're you're a very high class actor. I understand that, but can you tell me <laughs> what what was it like when you had to work on the beginning of civil rights? Wasn't he at the beginning of civil rights? Yes, he was. He was the one who brought the 101st Airborne, the same division that that had led the way on uh, uh, in Normandy. He brought them into Little Rock, Arkansas, to allow the young black children to go to uh, the Central High School there because Governor Orville Faulkas was trying to keep them out. And he had the Arkansas National Guard preventing those little kids from going to school. And that led to Brown versus the board and, uh, and started the integration of schools across America. Do you change scenery? No, none at all. It all takes place in his home uh, in Gettysburg, where he and Mamie lived uh, during his retirement. How did he get through hellish times? Was there something that you learned that you can give us so we can get through our own hellish times? Well, I, I think the thing that guided him was that morality. It wasn't religiousness, because he wasn't raised in any kind of church. Um, But it was sticking to what you know is right, no matter the consequences, as opposed to going with the flow and being subject to whatever, either bribery or uh, other kinds of of money or, or just fame and power. None of those matter. What matters is doing the best job you can, whatever the job is. And if it's a lonely job, you do that lonely job as well as you can. And if it's and if the big responsibility of, of the world and of the country is on your shoulders, then you do that job as well as you can. And with all of your heart and all of your sincerity and all of your humility. And that's well. something that we don't hear from almost any politician nowadays. Well, from a left winger, you're doing a great job on a good right winger guy. I can't wait to see this. Well, what was he then? 
He was a moderate. He his phrase was the middle way, and okay. he was he was hated by the right wing of the Republican Party. They thought he wasn't doing enough, and the left wing was sad about him too because he was you know too much in the middle. But his phrase was. The middle is the usable part of the road. If you steer too far to the right or the left, you end up in a ditch. So he was not a right winger. That that would be a false, uh, you know, uh, label for him. So when does it open? When do you open? We open on June 20th at the Theater St. Clements. It's an off-Broadway theater, but it's right up there in the Broadway Theater District on Restaurant Row. This is a wonderful play. It inspires people. People on the left, people on the right, young people who barely knew who Eisenhower was, old people who remember the Eisenhower years. It inspires them. I've watched their faces after performances, and it, it makes me just uh, so eager to get to that theater and share this play with Thank all you. Thank you, John. You sound wonderful. You're sounding uh, hey, almost I'm better it, than Cindy. Dwight David Eisenhower. Thank you, honey. Thank you for getting Thank on you. with Lovely us. Thank you. Lovely talking to you. Okay. Bye, honey. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. I'm about to speak to Lisa Ann Corpora, whom I'm dying to talk to. She has been a porn star. She is also a serious XM radio star with her clothes on. So tell me, tell me. Tell me your background. How did you start doing whatever the hell it was you were doing? So I started in the adult industry working at clubs in the Northeast, so Pennsylvania, New Jersey. I'm originally from Pennsylvania. And after a couple of years of studying the performers that got to travel and see the world as a dancer, meaning the adult film stars, I took a two-year study of interviewing them. And then took my very first flight ever from Pennsylvania to California and got into the industry. Uh, I was in the industry for about 30 years. And in 2013, I landed the opportunity to start talking fantasy sports on Sirius XM Fantasy Sports Radio. I've oh. since then gone from Sirius XM to a new network called the Better Sports Network, where I do my fantasy sports and sports betting content. Let me go back to your background. Who, where are you from? Where did you go to school? What's your parents? Tell me so we know who you are. So I went to school. I grew up in Easton, Pennsylvania. Uh, I went to Easton High School. Um, my parents, my whole family is still back in Easton, Pennsylvania. Um, I have one brother and two stepbrothers. Why do, why do we always think it's always bad ladies who get into porn? Why, is, why do we have that? feeling? Well, I think a lot of people have their own uh, situation with how they view themselves for watching adult content. You know, shooting adult content is a legal business within the United States. It's a tax generating business, which provides billions of dollars a year to the economy. And so what I think people wrap their head around it, they're not quite sure they can kind of come up with the resolution with themselves of the guilt that they might feel for watching the content and whether they can engage with that person moving forward when they get out of the industry. Myself keeping in the spotlight and continuing to brand myself and pivot into different careers has been interesting to watch because I've really learned it's not about me. 
It's about how other people perceive kind of coming up with their own checks and balances of how they feel about watching adult content. Their own formed opinions of this person can't be right. But at the same time, uh, it's such a lucrative business. It allowed me to travel and see the world. I still get to do international events. So as I've always seen it as a gift, as a way for me to fast track my financial wellness, allowing me to take jobs and do things like write books, which we all know is not the most profitable thing to do. But if you've worked hard in the adult industry and you've saved your money and set up a nice passive income from the content you've created, then you allow yourself your freedoms in your you know, 50s, 60s, and 70s to do whatever you want. And that's kind of the life that I'm living right now. Okay, you have been saying this several times because it, the way you say it, it comes out really smooth. I understand. How do you protect doing what you did from the bad things that we always think could be happening? I mean, we always imagine so many bad things could be happening from doing porn. Well, if this is a business more than anything else in the world where you have to know who you are when you enter the business. I don't recommend it for anybody who has any addiction or codependency issues because, of course, those things are very, very prevalent in the industry. And I knew who I was. I knew I wasn't going on set to do drugs or drink. I knew I wasn't going on the road to do drugs or drink. So for me, it was just a really serious business plan that also allowed me to have a little bit of fun. So I think knowing who you are, and that stands true in many businesses. You can get spit up and sent out the other side if you don't know who you are. So having that strong head on your shoulders and looking at the nuts and bolts of like this plan where, hey, I can shoot movies, I can go on the road and feature dance, I can do events, I can travel and do events internationally. If you have that going through you, then it's just another business. It's no Hey, I've had I've done business. all that too and I didn't do porn. I have traveled, I've slept all over the world. Porn is not the only way to see the world. No, no. No, no, no. But I'm saying like I, I, I never have paid to travel anywhere. I've always been paid to travel everywhere. It is not the only way. I'm just saying that is the way I viewed it. Did you watch it yourself? Have you watched porn since? I do. I still do watch with my guy. Uh, but I have to watch an international director, Mark Dorsell, because, of course, you can't watch your friends. You know what I mean? So I can't watch people that I know. So I have to go into, you know, the content <laughs> where nobody speaks English and it's all foreign uh, shots. So it's very different. But that's the niche that I stand. I didn't watch a lot until I became curious about it to get involved. And at that time, it was VHS. And the performers that would come through my club in Reading, Pennsylvania would give me a VHS tape and then I would go home and watch it in a very like coach watching a football game kind of tape. Right. I would watch it and analyze it and think, could I do that? Could I not do that? Would I be comfortable with that? So I just kind of studied it. So I knew what to expect when I was out in front of a camera. Did you do it with men, women or all together? Everything. I did it with everyone. Is it big money? It can be very big money. Once you build yourself a nice little brand, it can be very big money. Yes. Tell us about pornographic films you have been in. Uh, well, I couldn't list them all, but I'll say the most relevant would probably be Who's Nailin Palin. I got to star as Palin, Sarah Palin in Larry Flint's series of Who's Nailin Palin. And that was kind of groundbreaking at the time where Palin was chosen to be McCain's running mate in 2008. 
What? <laughs> I understand that. We all know that. What did it have to do with Sarah Palin, actually? Oh, we used a lot of her taglines. I mean, during the scenes, I had to say, drill, baby, drill. Uh, I had to say, you betcha. Uh, we wrote her kind of life story and kind of pivoted around of, of the things that were actually going on in her actual life in the very first movie, Who's Nail and Palin. I'm sure Sarah was really thrilled with this, right? Not thrilled. I can't even get her to do a cameo for me. You know, my friend tried to get her to do a cut cameo for me for my birthday, but he put my full name in the order. And I'm like, why would you do that? Why couldn't you just say Lisa Ann, not Lisa? Well, I couldn't just say Lisa because, I mean, I would love to get a cameo from Sarah Palin. Did you put on body paint makeup when you were doing nude shows? No, not at all. Well, I would have thought you would have wanted certain parts of your parts fixed up no i mean it's only gonna sweat off and rub off on everything so it's not worth it i don't have any tattoos to cover so there was no reason for that that's so much work come on it's if, just a beautiful naked body it's flaws a, there's flaws yeah well i i don't know about you but every other body has a few if a camera's on does the guy ever have difficulty getting ready of course i mean we need wood, right? Not always can you get wood. So that's sometimes a problem. Sometimes there's a day on set where you feel like you might be pushing rope up a hill, but uh, you'll make it, and it just takes a little bit more time or focus or maybe to reschedule. What do you mean by fine focus? Well, how do you get a guy ready when he's not ready? Not that I haven't experienced some of it, but how do you do that? When a camera's Sometimes on. he needs to pull himself into another room, maybe get away from the chatter that's been going on on set. Um, for him, it's a mental game. For these guys, it's really a mental game. So usually it takes them just having a little bit of time to themselves to refocus. So how many shots, supposing it's not a good close-up or not a good shot, and you have to do it again and again, like we've all done when we're doing movies, what, what, how, do, how, how does that work? We really don't redo scenes. That would be a whole nother day. So we just continue to shoot until we have the amount of content that we like, and then we edit out what we didn't like. Oh, oh, I see. Would you, if you had a daughter, would would you want her to go into a porn industry? You know, that would have to be very carefully directed, and I would have to know why. You know, for me, it was more survival. I was out on my own young, and I wanted to be financially secure. I would hope that if I was a parent that I would be able to afford college and other options for my child. But if my child came to me and said, this is what I would wanted to do, um, I would want to have a very open conversation about it and give it time, not make a hasty decision. But maybe sit down for a couple of months and, and have a conversation about it weekly until it's definitely a solid thing because there's definitely pros and cons to doing it. And it does affect your life forever. So it would be something that I would really want to support in the right way. But hopefully I'd be able to provide enough security that there'd be such a wealth of options that um, that wouldn't be the only. Okay, I know about the pros. What are the cons? Well, the cons are really, you know, what, what carries along with you because of the Internet for the rest of your life. Uh, this is not time-sensitive material. So if a, a new uh, viewer sees something, of course, they think you're doing it right now. 
Um, it's confused the minds of young men to believe that, you know, because you did this on camera, that you'd be willing to do this with them. Uh, the accessibility that it's given because of the Internet is very confusing for young men. And so that kind of follows you along. I get approached a lot. Um, and it, it can be a very awkward situation when somebody believes that, that because I did this, I should want to do this with them. And I obviously do not. Is there a hall of fame for pornography? Pornographers. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. You have to be in the industry for 15 years. And once you reach your 15 year mark, you get put in the hall of fame. Well, well, what is that? What, what does it mean to be in the hall of fame of pornography? What do you get? Uh, you get an award uh, and you get put on a, you know, a golden watch, yeah. <laughs> a golden yeah. watch. You get You get an award. Did you get one? I sure did. And is it in your library? It is not. I sold all of my awards to fans. They were just tchotchkes to me. What was I going to do with them? So I, I turned a profit on them all. Listen, when you're doing it, give, can you give me one time when the scene didn't work and you had to redo or how did you do it? How does it work? Uh, I really didn't have that issue because I was very careful on who I worked with. I worked with the same group of people my entire time in the industry. So I was comfortable with them and they were comfortable with me. Uh, so we worked very well together. It's kind of like a team sport. You've got to be able to help each other out. And so, you know, it's about communication and it's about supporting each other and uh, helping bring out the best in both of you. So it was, you know, it's, it's a very, for me, it was very easy. How about how about AIDS and wearing masks and pandemics and all the rest of that? I don't know. I was already out of the industry before the pandemic. What about the stigma of being a porn star? I mean, can you go to dinner with a society group? I can. I can do whatever I want in society. I'm a free person. Um, a stigma is something that someone else puts on me. It's not something I put on myself. Listen, I, I understand. You have all the answers nice and clear. I, I got it. I got it. And you're very careful about what you say. Somebody told me that there was a story that there was, that, that they were doing, that they were creating an artificial vagina. Do you know anything about that? Uh, I have one. It's called a fleshlight. And it is molded. It's, wait, 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 wait. Start again. It's what? Say it slowly because I'm very limited. Tell me again. It's what? It's called a fleshlight, F-L-E-S-H-L-I-G-H-T. So it looks like it's in a, a holder like a flashlight, uh, but it's actually a, a, a mimic. It's molded exactly identical to the stars in the industry today. It's a product that sells that we get a commission for lifetime off of the product. And uh, so, yes, it is a sex toy for men. Well, I got to tell you, it was very interesting talking to you i mean do you have any things you would like to add like does it help your own sex life or not i think i'm confident sexually so yes i would say that does help my sex life yes okay well i'm not going to let you near a husband if i ever have one again but thank you for <laughs> it. <laughs> 
if you're that competent, the hell with you. It was wonderful to have you on the air, and I appreciate your talking to me. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. It was nice to meet you. Have a wonderful holiday weekend. Thank you, Lisa. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Listen, (laughs) this struck me funny. A friend in her country house just phoned me just a few minutes ago. And then she said suddenly, I can't speak any longer. I have to hang up. Yeah, why do you have to hang up? She said, a skunk is in my backyard. A skunk? Forget rats, roaches, and Hunter Biden. A skunk in New York? Well, maybe we're all getting there, kids. Okay, onward, onward from skunks to other skank. Don Jr. and Kimberly Gilfoyle, Don Jr.'s lady friend, are now running Donald's new book up, www.45books.com. They are giving huge $300,000 to $500,000 advances for whoever writes nice books about Donald. And in our depressed, recessed economy, where is that bread coming from? Who knows? But somebody has it. And I am certainly hoping they're not going to give it to Kamala, the first woman, the first minority. But somebody said, don't worry about it. There are no worries. We will put her in a debate and she will only get 3%, so don't worry about it. Alan Dershowitz has lawyered Tyson, Leona, Donald, Patty Hearst, Julian Assange, Harvey Weinstein, Reverend Jim Baker, maybe even Marco Polo, who knows. Alan Dershowitz said to me, Our country today is without principle. My family's just been attacked. I've gotten 3 a.m. threatening phone calls. Caroline Kennedy wouldn't sit near me after I defended Trump. Today, everything depends on which side you're on. Said Alan, a good lawyer is like having a good doctor, but today you're convicted, no matter how good is your lawyer. I have lost innocents who got jail and seen shooters treated better. Take one cop who was shot. He and the wounded shooter were rushed to the hospital. I was there. The doctors treated the criminal first. The cop was furious. They said, we don't judge good or bad. We treat the most serious wounded. Really? Okay. Let's forget Donald's problems. There's the overwhelming Nixon standard where even Republicans wanted him indicted. But not Hillary although she possessed material on her home computer, the government must now prove Trump is even worse. I want to tell you something about about my friend, my friend Barbara Walters. She is gone, as you know. We grew up together. We were teenagers together. Her father, Lou Walters, owned a nightclub on Broadway and 47th Street. And Barbara was going to school And I was then dating a comedian by the name of Joey Adams who was starring in Lou Walter's Latin Quarter. She once said to me, and she told me she had this on tape. She said about Putin, and she had this on tape. 
He said, after 9-11, I have mixed, and I have heard this, I have heard this out of his own voice. He said, I have mixed feelings of guilt for this 9-11 tragedy. In 99, we were victims of a terrorist attack and explosion of buildings in Moscow. Hundreds of innocent people died. There was realization that Russia should be a strategic ally of the entire civilized community, including certainly the United States. If we want to be protected, we have to be together. He said after September 11, it was a realization that Russia should be a strategic ally of the entire civilized community, including certainly the United States of America. Said Putin, on record, I listened to his voice as Barbara Walters was interviewing him. He said, September 11 opened our eyes to that fact. So, I'm going to go on. If you are hunting for new ways to exercise, how about you tie one end of a rubber band to your car's rear axle and the other end to the tongue of our DA, Pig Bragg, then ask him how smart he is. I'm coming to an end. Since it's a holiday and I want you to think about our country, the memorable days in the early life of what's lately become our country bring me to Nathan Hale. Nathan Hale said, I regret that I have only one life to give to my country. Patrick Henry said, Give me liberty or give me death. And John Hancock said, Have I got a policy for you? Listen, everyone is having so much difficulty these days that a friend even asked his son, the lawyer, for advice. The friend afterward received a bill. A family member then asked him, You would actually charge your own father? And he said, please, I gave him a 50% discount. Kids, that's only in New York, only in New York, only in the United States of America, only on the weekend of Memorial Day, and only now that I'm about to hang up and say, I've loved you for listening to me. Thank you. And please tune in again next Sunday at one o'clock. Bye.